This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. You ready? Yep. All right. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader. And before we get into it with my friend, Josh Smith of Montana Knife Company, I got to tell you about our sponsors. Number one is Axe Wax. Axe Wax is an all-natural, food-safe wax for your wood, your steel, your axes, your hammers. Uh, when I do uh, wooden handles, I'm always using Axe Wax. I love it because it's food-safe. Um, I actually did some uh, Damascus recently, and then I coated it with some Axe Wax, and it was great, and I felt confident that it's food-safe, it finishes great, and I don't have to put any icky on my stuff where I send it to my customers. If you go to axewax.us, put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get 10% off your order, and I I appreciate everybody over at Axe Wax. You guys have been really, really great. And guys, if you want to try it out, I mean, it's, you know, for you get 10% off, it's definitely worth getting a puck or two. The next thing I want to talk to you about is something that I feel very strongly about. A lot of you guys are very creative, and the creativity is what you should be focusing on and the drive to get you the next step. One of those things that's going to help you is a good website, a good website that's clean and clear. It's going to, it's going to answer questions that people will obviously have and sneak into your DMs and ask you. And if you had it written down on your website, they wouldn't have to ask you. But let's face it, they're still going to ask you. If you go to akinteractive.com slash full blast and full out, fill out the paperwork... As a listener of the podcast, you're going to get ten percent. You're going to get ten percent off in general. Andreas Kalani is a knife maker who makes beautiful websites, and he's got twenty plus years of experience in in this. And as a graphic designer, he will give you a couple options. He'll make you a new website, or if you have a website that you just need kind of fixing up, he'll fix that for you. So go to akinteractive.com/slash/fullblast and fill out the paperwork. You get the ten percent off. Now, there's nothing, there's no promo code, but what you need to do is you need to, if you want, you can go to the bottom of the show notes in this podcast, and then what you'll do is you'll see the hyperlinks to everything, and with AK Interactive, the 10% is baked in once you fill out the paperwork. So go get yourself a good website, or fix yourself a website, or get your whatever, whatever, whatever. I'm with you, akinteractive.com, Axwax, thank you so much. Okay. I've been waiting for this podcast for a long time because Josh Smith is, I'm so happy for Josh Smith in regards to the direction that he's gone. He's the president of a Montana Knife Company, which is an explosively fast-paced, amazing new company. I couldn't be happier for him. I'm so glad you're here. Josh, how are you? I am great, Jeff. Thank you for having me. I hope hope we didn't start this off with my phone making a bunch of noise in your in your advertisement there. I got phone calls and I don't know, not technological enough to shut these things off. So hopefully that didn't show up in your audio. It'll show up in the audio, but don't worry, you're a busy guy. I appreciate Shit. your time. I appreciate your time. And I know that, I mean, if I were you, I don't know how you're able to do anything because you you are so slammed these days. I'm just grateful that you had the chance to kind of carve out a little time for me. Well, I appreciate it, man. No, thank you for having me. I, I, I love your podcast and, uh, you know, this podcast plus what you do with uh, Craig and Mareko. And, um, yeah, you, you guys are you and, and your, uh, you know, the whole, the whole team over there of what you guys are doing with your guys' podcast there as well as just representing knife makers and our craft so well. So 
Oh, it's super cool. And I, uh, hopefully, I, sh- I shut my phone off. I don't know I know even how to shut all these damn things off on my computer. But. You don't need to know. Don't worry about it, Josh. <laughs> don't worry about it. I don't give I a feel shit. Terrible. To, don't feel terrible. <laughs> don't worry. This is, I'd rather have a, a normal conversation. Shit goes. One time I was interviewing a guy and my compressor went off just the way it is. It's fine. You know, it's just, that's how it is. These are, you know, these are, we're not, it's fine. Okay. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned the podcast because I was thinking about we, you know, we, you and I have had really, really great conversations over the years, and I don't know if you remember this, but it must have been it, it had to have been over two years ago. It might have even been three years ago, and you start you called me one day, one morning, and I remember it was the morning because you were telling me you were in your truck. You were the uh, foreman of a of a, a lineman crew. You were lineman out in in Montana, mm-hmm. and you were just you were listening to knife talk or whatever, and you just wanted to talk. And we hadn't really spent a lot of time talking before, but we were talking, and you were told me about this idea. You were listening to the podcast, or whatever you were listening, and you said to me, "I heard that you have a business partner," and I, we you and I talked about business partners, and yeah. and you told me about the beginning stages of of Montana Knife Company. And it was such a, I can't tell you, but thinking about you sitting in that truck, and I'm picturing you're in this almost like a wasteland of snow with these, (laughs) with this wasteland of snow on this barren, on this barren road. You, all you see is snow forever. You're in your truck waiting for your crew to arrive because that's what you told me. Yeah. And you're about to fix uh, this telephone polar. I'm not 100%. I want to get into what alignment does, but you were talking about it and it was just like I was imagining, I was in my warm shop. I had the boiler going. I was, and, and all I could think of is I, I really appreciated the fact that you reached out to me, but I really appreciated how we talked about your plans. Well, I appreciate that. No, I remember that. Um, no, it's, uh, I, I remember it was like it was yesterday. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I, you know, the whole business partner thing was was really scary to me, but I I had seen how successful, you know, you were doing what you guys were doing. And, uh, you know, I, I asked a few people that I respect that have business partners, how they were doing it successfully. Cause you always just hear of nightmares, right. You know, business partners. And, uh, so yeah, from that point on, I did end up partnering up with a, with a friend of mine or, you know, at that time really wasn't a friend. It was just a, a guy that, had been suggested to me and uh yeah kind of took off from there this this is one of the toughest spots for a and, and you know i have a m- number of things going on in my head right now one of them is is how humble you are but one of the things that's really tough for creative people especially um really really skilled people who like you who you know get master bladesmith at 19 you're a journey, you're a journeyman smith at 15 i mean you're the youngest person to ever get the master smith from the abs you get to the point where especially when you're a creative person it's hard for you to relinquish a little bit of control and it is the most the hardest thing to be able to depend on other people and I, I just the fact that you're able to find a guy like Brandon. How do you pronounce his last name? Hororo. Horaho. Yeah. Horaho. Yeah. It's just been. It's been. It's like. It's like peanut butter and chocolate. I mean, it just seems like this was like the match made in heaven. It absolutely. And I mean, I, I, I could not have been luckier to find, you know, a, a guy like him. And you know, as as artists or craftsmen, 
um, you know, people that kind of do what we do, you know, we, we, we tend to get good at what we were passionate about from the very beginning, which is, you know, whether it's making knives or doing artwork or blacksmithing, whatever it is. Um, but most people that do that stuff aren't going to be masters at marketing too. I mean, right. you, you kind of pick a lane and, uh, I knew to build a brand, um, you know, bigger than just what I was doing with my custom knives. I knew I needed help. Like I had done all the marketing quote unquote, not that I really did much marketing as a custom maker, but you know, you do your own Instagram posts. And then the next thing, you know, like say blade magazines running something and they want, um, you know, a photograph in a certain format or whatever. Right. And it's like, you know, logos, if you want to make business cards and just, I would, in my custom knives, I would spend, you know, a whole day trying to figure out how to design a business card, you know, and, and I just knew that to grow my brand where I wanted it to go, I had to have help. And it was kind of, I, I had to relinquish part of my company to do that. Um, and it's kind of an interesting story when I, you know, I hired Brandon originally that's that spring to just come down and, and, and take some pictures, you know, and do some content stuff. And, and then he kind of mentioned like, you know, well, uh, you know, I can build websites and I can do this. So I had him build my website and I started realizing really quickly, like this dude's more than a photographer. Like he's, a, he's freaking smart, you know? Right. And, uh, so later in that summer, I told my wife, I said, I think this is the guy that can like help me do what I need to do, you know? And so I offered him partnership. We kind of talked about it. We didn't really discuss particular numbers. And he came, he came to me and he's like, all right, I, I would be interested in doing it. He's like, how is like 10% or 15% of your business? And I said, absolutely not. And, and it got kind of awkward for a second. I think he was thinking, you know, I was thinking right. way too high. And, and I said, uh, how about 60, 40, you get 40. And he's like, what? And I, I said, I want you committed. Like I want yeah. you, I want this to be something that you dive into as hard as possible. And if it goes really well, we both do well. And if it fails, it, you know, it fails, <laughs> But yeah. I, I need you like all in. And from that point on, that's what it's been, you know. That, that is that is the one of the things that I've told people in the past, especially, you know, maybe that's also for employees too. There's this idea that a partner, especially at a lower percentage, is like an employee, but they re, you really can't, it can't be the case. When you take on a partner, you have to, you're, you're also saying, I'm willing to, I want to listen. I'm I'm not I'm not high, I'm not having you as a partner because I want to tell you what to do. I'm looking for different eyes to see what I'm doing. You know, we're yeah. wrong or or ha getting suggestions on what I'm doing right. One of the things that I love about the whole, you know, I hate to use the word li word lifestyle, but M Montana Knife Company, the way you guys do Instagram pictures and the way you do just the marketing 
you're creating this incredible tableau of a lifestyle, the hunting lifestyle and the Montana lifestyle. And I, when I see the pictures and I see how it's done, and I, the, I just ordered some shirts. I buy a pile of shirts from you guys. I buy, I'll buy whatever you got. I love buying yeah. all your stuff. You've got to quit buying shirts. You need to just text me and I'll send you no, everything. No, 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 no. But I tell you you're what. You're so, you, so kind and supportive. I tell you what. But here's the thing. I love it. I love what you're doing. And the shirts look great. Everything looks great, and I can tell that he's had such a huge influence on the visual aspects of Montana Knife Company. Yeah, you know, yeah, and I, you know, I was trying to explain to him in the very beginning when we first met for that photo shoot day, like my idea of what I wanted this company to feel like, other things I had seen from other companies that I liked, other things I didn't like. I didn't want it to be fake and hokey and and you know, I, I started to f- figure out real quick that he, he just got it, you know, like yeah. he got the feel. And it's also awkward, right? Like you understand and any knife maker listening to this understands marketing yourself is really weird and awkward to do, right? Because you got to tell your story. But then again, you don't want to seem like the arrogant asshole that's always just talking about themselves. But you have to sell yourself. Um, and, and I remember thinking like, God, other knife makers are going to be looking at this. What are they going to think of me? Because ultimately I always want to have the respect of the masters who taught me and of my fellow bladesmiths that, you know, are maybe on our same level. Right. And I, and I want makers that are looking up to me to, to maybe see a, a a good way of doing business. So like, I want to represent myself well. Um, but it's so hard to tell your own story and it's just awkward. So a lot of times you end up not doing it well. And that's the nice thing about having someone help you with that is it's coming from like the post that he writes and everything. Like we don't discuss that stuff. He does it himself. I run my Instagram. He runs MKC. And every once in a while I'll write a post about something I'm like passionate about, but yeah, it's, it's uh, I, I appreciate you saying that because we we want that feel that we want people around the world to see what it's like in Montana and out west and you know I I think and you don't have to live in Montana I mean you can live in the Appalachians or down in the Everglades or wherever it is like we have so many amazing places in this country and so many people love to kind of live through what other people are doing you know if and it's worldwide you know they. They dream about going to the mountains of Montana or the prairies of Kansas or, you you know, wherever it is in our country, there's amazing, you know, we went to Zion Park this year in Utah or the Grand Canyon. Like if people that these, a lot of these knife makers don't realize is, man, a lot of people love to just see what you're doing and kind of live through you. And maybe that's just right in your own shop, you know, right in the, in the middle of a city, you know. Um, what we do is so unique as knife makers, you know, it's pretty cool. I, but here's the one thing I was really, you know, I've been waiting to get a hold of you and I've been thinking about you and, 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 and what you've been doing for so long. And with one, you know, we talked to a million knife and we talked to, I, I deal with knife makers daily in the DMS, you know, for knife talk and everything else questions. Like yeah. And what I always tell people is the most important thing is that you 
really like what you're making and you have this con- connection to it. Like yep. uh, most of the guy, I mean, I make mostly culinary knives and, you know, I grew up, I went to culinary school and uh, my friends are cooks. My business partner was a professional chef. I love, co- I cook at home. I love cooking. And I feel this connection because I use it all the time. What you've done is you've been able to kind of parlay your life of hunting into this, which is number one, it's amazing. And I want to get into hunting because I really, my, my experience with it is almost, is almost nothing. I find the hunting, hunting so amazing because it's really changed over the past few generations. Mm-hmm. And now because you do it so much and you bring your family, your family's involved and you do trips and you do these beautiful trips. And it just looks like these very you know, romantic trips with your family. When I said that, I say that in the regards to like these beautiful vistas and seeing things and maybe you don't get something, but you still have this incredible experience. Yeah, Hunting has changed so much in the few generations. And now it's been embraced by this kind of athletic this athletic culture of crossfitting mm-hmm. and, and uh, organic eating and conservation and, you know, MMA fighters are now, I think a lot of it has to do with Joe Rogan, but a lot of, you know, MMA fighters are heavily involved in hunting and you've kind of like latched into this incredible community of, it's different than like the Elmer Fudd hunters that I remember when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, yeah. And I got a story about one of them. My, the only time, one of the only times we went hunting with this real Elmer Fudd type character was it. But now it's a, it's like working out so you can pack your meat out, and the whole thing is it's very this is incredibly physical undertaking. It is, yeah, and and it's there's several, you know, different reasons for that. And you're right, Joe Rogan is, uh, you know, he's a, he's a huge voice for hunting right now, which is. And he, he does a really good job of trying to explain, you know, everything behind hunting besides just going out and killing animals, right? right. Whether it's whether it's nourishing your body, uh, the conservation dollars that so many people don't know. You know, we, we see that in our state. I mean, the, the it's just the single greatest source by miles, uh, you know, is, is hunters' dollars going to conserving habitat protecting animals studying those animals studying their numbers disease related stuff you know um there's just so much good behind all that and then yeah you're right the the whole you know workout kind of culture around i i I think you know like a person like cameron haynes has been big with that stuff of kind of giving someone purpose to maybe you know let's say you live in in New York, right? And and you're dreaming of your elk hunt in Montana next September and you have an entire year. Well, it might give that guy purpose to go to the gym. Um, you know, and it doesn't matter, you can live wherever, but it gives someone the kind of purpose to stay healthy and stay fit year round, getting ready for this big yeah, you know, trip they want to go on and and for me personally, you know, I'm not in crazy good shape. I need to get in better shape, but it's a lot more about taking my kids i mean frankly i could really care less if i shoot anything in fact it was funny i got a deer this year with my bow in arizona and my buddies were like man it's about time you got something and i was like well yeah i've been focusing on my kids for the last five years they've shot elk and they've shot every all of them have shot deer every year and i get so much joy out of the seeing them succeed in anything they do but even more so like taking them on those trips because 
it's kind of forced time together that you just wouldn't schedule in the middle of November if you weren't going deer hunting. You know, you're you're leaving for a week and the calendar's coming up and you know you're doing it and God, we're out there and we see all kinds of things like out in eastern Montana, you know, in the Missouri River breaks. There is absolutely no reason for anybody to go visit there other than to go hunt. It's really? so far kind of off the grid, but it's and it's it's kind of away from the typical touristy areas of Glacier Park or Yellowstone. But it's unbelievably beautiful. And, you know, we sit there and talk about like, you know, we'll sit on one of those little bluffs looking down at the Missouri River. And I'm like, imagine those guys with Lewis and Clark rowing up this river, upstream. They rode upstream for two goddamn years, <laughs> you know, and imagine how like what the trials and tribulations they went through. And imagine the Indians that lived out here and like here we are hunting for five days to try to find one deer and they had to feed their their tribe, their families with what they shot, you know, and there's just so much good that comes from that. Um and it's hard work, right? And and then teaches them the reward of and like my boy and I, we went a couple weeks ago, went for four or five days and got nothing and drove home. You know, and there's that part of it, dealing with that and that whole idea of like, we're going to come back and do it again, you know, and keep after it. So I would think that that is ultimately the idea of dealing with disappointment at a young age like that has to be beneficial. I'm convinced that those hard disappointments where, I mean, I can only imagine the anticipation. I'm going to, you're going to go hunting with your dad. You're going to go five days. It's going to be just you and your father. And there's going to be a lot of, you know, good times and bad times. But dealing with that disappointment of not catching anything, getting anything, it has to be good foundation for dealing with disappointment in life. Yeah, I, I think so. And I, and I try, I do actually really try to make it uh, fun as well from the standpoint of, you know, like my boy and I, we took our tent, we hiked in, we, we camped under the stars with our tent on our back. We cook food. I'll start a little campfire, you know, um, cook over that. And I, I try to do things to where I don't just go death march them around. There's a lot of places I'd love to take them hunting, but <laughs> I would destroy them and they wouldn't think it's any fun. You know, so, you know, we, when the, my kids were little and I took them hunting, I took them on little bullshit walks where you weren't going to really ever shoot anything and start a campfire and cook some like instant mountain house meal, dry, you know, freeze dried meal and took them home. And they were like, they went on a big hunting expedition, (laughs) you know, um, and they love it. And that's what they actually talk about the most is like, you remember when you lit that stump on fire in the woods, <laughs> you know, and the, it just to them, that's so wild and so cool, you know, and and you do see the, the animals. I had three kids with me here a couple of years ago and we saw a mountain lion in the woods, 50 yards from us, you know, um, and th- that like burn, it's amazing how that kind of stuff will just burn in their memory, you know, that must've been scary. Yeah, he just hopped over a log and took off. We just surprised him. So it wasn't really like much of an encounter. But, uh, you know, but every every single year I take my kids deer hunting without without fail. They'll they'll be like, Dad, you remember we saw that mountain lion a few years ago? Like it just is like burned into their minds, you know? 
Well, see, this is the part that I that I love how you've been able to kind of kind of weave these stories into your business because mm-hmm. it is it is more. I you know I think that. I mean, growing up in New York, I never obviously, well, obviously, but I never went hunting. My dad wasn't a hunter; he was from the, from the Bronx. He didn't really know anything about hunting, or didn't really have any interest in it. The only times I went hunting twice were so bizarre. The first time was we had a neighbor. Uh, my dad had a place in upstate New York. And we had a neighbor, and my dad showed him this. I made a uh, toy gun when I, I guess I was like eleven or twelve. I made this toy gun, and I put on like with PVC pipe. I made a sniper scope, and I made the I made the trigger and everything like that. And then the next day, the neighbor came with wearing the Elmer Fudd costume, and it it was like the uh, you know flannel. <laughs> The padded flannel with his with the the bottoms of his pants tucked into his like you know big boots and he big had old the, brown hat. <laughs> the, he had a he had a flannel red hat and he had a flannel red coat, flannel yeah. pants. I mean, it was legit. And he was a short little guy, and it was legitimately. And he came to the house and he says, "Get Jeff. I'm ready. I'm ready to take him hunting." And I came downstairs and I was just like, "Okay, well, uh, okay." So I you know just put on a pair of and I was like 11. I didn't know anything. My dad was just like, "I don't know. I go." Whatever he does, tell him what he tell him what to do, and he says. He, I said to him, I'm like, "I said to him, I don't really have a gun," and he goes, "Well, go get the gun you just built." So I grabbed the gun that I made out of wood and PVC pipe from the shop, and I went yeah. with him, and, and we and he brought me, he gave me a bucket, and he said, and he put me on under a tree, and he was on the other side of the tree. We sat on the bucket, and he said, "Don't move," and I sat there for three hours. And I was yeah. like, this is the worst thing I've ever had to do. I didn't really – all I could smell and see were he had a little pouch of red man chewing tobacco. And I always loved the font and the label and the cover of the red man. And he was putting plugs of chewing tobacco in. And and then after three hours, he says, okay, it's time to go home. And I was just like, that's hunting? And he's like, that's hunting. And we went home, and I, my dad said, well, what happened? I'm like, I we didn't do anything, really. And we sat yeah. in the tree, and I was, sat in the woods I was carrying this goddamn toy gun, and I, we didn't yeah. do anything yeah oh that's funny yeah and you you talk about that i i remember you know my parents didn't hunt but my uncle was nice enough to start taking me when i was young and um yeah the the distance that gear and all that stuff has come like yeah i just went and levi's or wranglers or whatever i had you know pair of pants and a cotton shirt that you know you're just walking around basically just waiting to die because you're so unprepared you know never had a pack with any survival stuff and um i actually remember i got into i talk, i was talking with, about this with my dad the other day because he's not a hunter and i said to him i'm like i don't know how i survived like high school and junior high because i i bought my first tree stand at a garage sale it was like some homemade piece of shit with cracked welds and like I went and put it up. I took nails out of my dad's shed and put nails in a tree and climbed up there. Somehow strapped it to a tree. I have no idea what kind of knot or how like it held me. And I sat in it and I actually shot some deer through high school. And my dad said, "Well, didn't didn't like your uncle or somebody show you how to do it?" I'm like, "No, you guys just let me go do that stuff with no you know no cell phones, no communication." I was like, God, I don't I have no idea how I survived those times, you know. And now with my boy, you know, I've got you've got GPSs and you've got an inReach so they can communicate, and you know, like all this great gear and survival and safety belts to tie to the tree, and I just was turned loose. 
<laughs> so, did you, so your uncle was your uncle the one who took you hunting first, or? Yeah, he was a logger and he he hunted and and you know the guy that taught me to make knives, which a lot of people here will uh, will remember it was uh, or will know is Rick Dunkerley. You know, I never hunted with Rick, but Rick was a big hunter. Uh, you know, I was I was like ten when I met him. I was eleven when he started teaching me, but the knife stuff, but he was a hunter and an outfitter, which I thought was really cool. My uncle was a hunter. And so it was my uncle that I asked, like, can I go hunting with you? And, uh, and then, you know, I got along really good with a lot of older guys in town. You know, I was 13, 14, and I was friends with a lot of 25, 30 year olds that were hunters. And so those guys took me as well. Just, and I think about it now, how cool it is. Like, It'd be like me randomly taking one of my son's friends, um, you know, hunting just because they would maybe ask me. And, of course, I would do that. But I look back now of how special it was and how nice of it was of them to do that. You know, I kind of took that for granted. Um, They would stop at my house at 5 in the morning and pick me up and take me bow hunting and show me how to do it. You know, it's really cool. I now take for granted my Elmer Fudd experience. He showed up at the house, and he took me he took me hunting. He didn't have to do that. It was a nice <laughs> yeah. thing. It was a nice shot. I mean, we didn't do anything, but it was a nice yeah. gesture. It was a nice yeah. gesture. It was. Yeah, it was. Sounds like I had maybe a little better experience. You know, actually, a lot of the a lot of the country does tree stand hunt where you just go sit and wait for deer, and we're lucky because you know we have other stuff to hunt around here like elk and bears and stuff where you do more hiking it's a little more interactive um the best way to hunt deer is sitting in a tree stand but i'll be honest with you it's freaking boring as hell you know so i I can see where a 13 year old kid you know you sit in a tree for an hour and you're like okay well this is stupid (laughs) yeah you know the guys that are successful will sit all day for two weeks before they shoot a deer you know once in a while, I'll get a DM from a customer of mine who's sitting in their tree watching Instagram stories, waiting yep. for deer to with the with the with the sound off, and they'll send a selfie saying, "I'm sitting in this goddamn tree watching Instagram exactly. stories." But you know, the so th- funny you said that. I had a guy a guy text me today. He's in Ohio right now from here, and he's deer hunting, and he te- texted me from his tree stand. You know, I'm old enough to remember you just sat in that tree with nothing but your thoughts and your, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. it's a lot of time to think about everything you're doing wrong in life. <laughs> I, you know, you know, it's funny because funny that you say that particularly because, um, well, I, I want to get back to it, but I, I had the, the, the only other hunting story I had was my father had a friend who was this German hunter and his name was Wolfgang. And he used to come by my dad's place every so often. My dad had a big farm, and we also he had a vineyard. And so we actually had a license. We had the ability to allow people to hunt all year long in the property because they were pests. The deer were pests. So he had some sort of, I'm not 100% sure what, but he had, you know, hunters were able to hunt on the property with a special, I have no idea, honestly, honestly yeah. but there was like, you know, we had a, per, a pest problem. Right. So this guy, so this guy Wolfgang came to the house and he said, I want to know where all the deer are. And my dad said, well, Jeff goes up in the woods all the time. He just, he walks around the woods and I was just like fooling around up there, you know, and, you know, looking around and I said, oh yeah, yeah, well, I know where the deer are. The deer go here, here. He's like, well, why don't you take me? 
So this big German guy, and it was like the very typical German outfit. He had like this German hunting jacket on, and he had like, I mean, he looked, I mean, as much as Elmer Fudd looked like Elmer Fudd, this guy looked like what you would expect as like a German hunter with the, you know, he had like this, you know, very expensive rifle with a scope on it. And we were talking, and I was taking him up, and and he told me what it's like to, and I was asking questions. I really had no understanding of hunting at all, and he goes, well, in Germany, we make you take classes about butchering and how you, you know, the correct way to shoot the animal and this, that, the other thing. And all of a sudden we're talking and he, and he just puts his finger to his lips and then he sees this deer. And then he asks, and then he kind of puts me down to a kneeling position and he puts the mm-hmm. rifle on my shoulder. Oh my God. He says, don't, don't move. And I'm like, what? There was no preparation. There was not. There was just like, and I'm just waiting. And I and I just kind of put my finger in my ear, and nothing went off. But I was just like, that's how you hunt. You just put a gun on the kid's shoulder, and then you pull. <laughs> and, then, and then and then and then and then we ended up, you know, get, he got a deer, and I helped him, you know, cut the, you know, he gutted it in the field, and he was explaining how you do it, and and it was all very like intense and stuff like that. But I yeah. just remember both. Experiences experiences being really kind of like bizarre and very not familial like there oh, was for sure. i didn't have that like here's what you do son <laughs> yeah it was more like yes kneel down even <laughs> with this rifle on your shoulder and, and don't move you know, and don't move you know it's just it was like yeah. that was bizarre it was totally bizarre yeah for sure yeah i think you had the right intuition at a young age like this isn't right it was like the whole thing, and then my dad was just, and then you know, and then the the interesting thing was always because we had hunters on our property all the time, we would get like people would bring the wild game. Like we, my dad always had like a leg of deer or or a backstrap, or we would have sure. you know somebody would bring ducks that they had shot, or we would always had in the freezer we always had wild game. So we real, my dad was a really good cook. He also liked. He was a big fan of cooking like tough cuts. Like tough cuts was his move. Like he was more of like a, he was very skilled in like kind of classic uh, French style cooking. So it's like tough cuts were like his like signature move. So, you know, with deer, it seems like it's all tough cuts. But it was like, it was, that was always fun for us to get all that, you know, all the meat. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. I was thinking about what you were saying about about um, having time to think. And what the interesting thing is, when I was at the last shop I was at, we had these, we were doing mostly uh, architectural, uh, you know, outsides of buildings. We were doing a lot of elevator handrails, like the stuff you'd see on the inside of an elevator. So, like, if somebody was bringing a cart into the elevator, it wouldn't scratch the inside of the elevator. So, like, those, like, rectangular tubing rails and stuff like that so we had this machine that was called a stroke sander and a stroke sander is a giant belt sander I mean, each belt is like a hundred feet long it's six inches wide and then instead of you know you'd see like a two by 72 you that bottom part you'd actually have in your hand you'd have a block of wood and the material would be on a, like rollers and then you would actually hold down the belt to to roll in like a satin finish on a railing or stuff like that or, or roll you rolling out like tubing or stuff like that yeah. So it was one of those things where we weren't allowed to use headphones. We had to be very careful. I mean, you got like a hundred foot, you know, six inch, you know, belt, you know, 60 inch, you know, 60 grit belt going super duper fast. You really have to be as paying attention as possible. Right. 
And what I what my boss used to say is, I want you to really pay attention, but just be careful while you're alone with your thoughts. Because what's going to happen is you're going to go places that you probably didn't expect to go. And yeah. I found myself thinking for days and like going into like things that happened in my life, what, why, you know, the people's interactions, people's decision making. And I found it very interesting because I've learned so much about myself in terms of just being alone and kind of thinking about like the way things are. Yeah. When you were a lineman and you're sitting in the, tell me how you became a lineman. How did, how did that come about? Well, I was a full-time knife maker for almost 10 years. And in that process, you know, I, I, you know, got married, we started having kids and, and then around that 2008 timeframe, uh, you know, I was traveling to all the typical shows and doing all that. And I was making kind of high end Damascus, you know, folders and fixed blades. And all of a sudden the economy started to kind of turn, you know, that was, I think that was the year Obama got elected. Um, but you know, we were starting to hear like, wow, this, I think that's when the housing bubble crashed. And I started to really over that, about a year, year and a half time frame, I started to get really concerned about the fact that I was making $5,000 knives for a living. Right. And, and at the, as this was happening, I also had a friend I was teaching to make knives, uh, in, in the evenings, just kind of for fun and on the weekends that he wanted to learn. And he was a, a journeyman welder at Northwestern Energy at this utility, a uh, gas guy. And he would sit out in my shop and tell me, oh, I'm making $40 an hour and I got paid vacation and I got a 401k and I'm, oh, I'm on paid time off next week for a week. And like all these benefits that as a full-time knife maker, you know, you don't have literally any of those, you right. know, and it's easy. It's always easy to think the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, but I was sitting there with young babies and, and starting to think like, man, I, I, I started to see some of my orders, not necessarily get canceled, but people I'd call them to do a knife and they'd be like, well, I want to wait, you know, the stock market's down right now or whatever. Well, a job opening came up there uh, for a for an operator, basically for a backhoe operator on that gas side, basically working for him. And long story short, I I decided to apply and I got that job. Uh, and so for about six months, I did that job. But I as I as I went to work there, um, and that was a really big decision, right? Like I was quitting making knives full time, which was really a kind of a mind fuck, really, because it's it's like you're failing. Right. But I felt like I needed to do it to be sure that I was able to, you know, keep my house and raise my kids and give them everything I needed to give them. And there was a lot of guarantees with that job and really none with what I was doing. Um, and so as as I went to work there, I quickly learned as I was working there that the other side of the room, the electric department, had a lot of guys retiring. And there was going to be a lot of opportunity for apprenticeships and, and to become a journeyman way faster on the electric side than the gas. And I learned more about what alignment was and what they did. I didn't, I didn't know. How and old were you? I was probably almost 30, hmm. right in there. Uh, yeah, I was 28, somewhere right in there. 
And so um, I, uh, yeah, 29, whatever, right in there. Yeah. And so I did. I made the jump. Uh, a, a job opening kind of opened up over there. A, a guy got an apprenticeship. That meant a groundman job opened up, which is just a grunt essentially on that side. And I went to work, and then a, a year later, a, another apprenticeship came open. I applied, got that, became an apprentice lineman. Uh, that's a three-and-a-half-year program. And then at the end of that, you test, and uh, I became a journeyman lineman. Um, you know, and it's a, it's a pretty intense process. Um, and so that whole time I, I did that, I still continued to make some knives at home on the side. But I'll be honest with you, I was just so busy with kids and with Lyman stuff that the knives really took a back seat for a while. Yeah. You know, the, the apprenticeship is, you know, it's pretty serious. There's a lot of book work study, um, you know, outside of working hours that you have to do a lot of testing. Uh, so there wasn't a lot of time in the evenings for knives, you know, but, but the thing is, and I, sh- I probably just shot ahead when you, when you were a kid and you were a student of Rick Dunkerley, and then mm-hmm. you became a you know a journeyman smith at 15 and then a master bladesmith at 19 i would imagine the pressure of being a lineman of passing those tests were a lot less um yeah i mean honestly i think there i felt like there was a lot more writing on it at that time when i was oh, a yeah. kid i was just doing it because i was excited to do it but right. i was a kid living at home i really had no pressure it was only internal pressure right um i really feel like there was definitely a lot more pressure uh, when you're, you kind of feel like your family's depending on it, you know? Um, so I, I don't really remember ever feeling a lot of pressure, uh, as a kid, it was more, um, excitement and also, uh, you know, just kind of internal pressure to try to do it. And you don't want to fail in front of everybody. And Blade Magazine had made a big deal of what I was doing. And so you, you knew that like people were watching and, you don't ever want to fail uh, in front of people, which in the end, everyone ends up failing a lot in life. And you just, as you get older, you realize it's not as big a deal as it seems when you're a kid. Do you feel uh, that when you were younger and Blade Magazine was making a deal of you being the youngest journeyman Smith, did you feel like that there was external criticism? Not much, no, not much at all. Everybody was, it was really pretty good. You know, I, I, I'm sure there were probably some people that thought, you know, I passed those tests because I was a kid, um, you know, or maybe getting unfair, you know, maybe like easier treatment. Um, but I, I think people that knew me and, you know, the knife world was so tight back then because there was no internet, there was no Instagram. Like we went and did knife shows and you pretty much, just about knew everybody in the industry all the time, you know? And so I think over time of going to hammer-ins and going to shows, like people really did see that I was like really serious about what I was doing. And I I took a lot of pride in it and I was trying to do it well. Um, Every once in a while you'd run into a knife maker that seemed to, you know, not, not be a big fan or, you know, just, just not be real helpful or to want to talk to you or whatever. But Honestly, that was so rare. I wouldn't even be able to name a guy. You right. know, every in general, the knife world was phenomenal and so helpful. And that's the only reason. Like, let's face it: if a kid passes a journeyman test at fifteen or master at nineteen, you, you know, yes, I put in a lot of work, but 
holy shit, man, there's a, there's a lot of information that was, that was given to me and, and I was taught, uh, to get that good that fast. You know, I didn't, I definitely didn't do it on my own, you know? Yeah. You know, I, I think about when you, when you, I, you know, I, you and I were, uh, DMing not too long ago and, and I said to you how, I, once again, I, I, sh- I just said how you, how you deserve the success. I think it was after one of the, you know, one of the many, you know, drops where the Montana Knife Company knives went in like two minutes or a minute and a half or whatever. And I said to you, you deserve this. And you said to me, I don't know if I do. And that's, I said something along those lines, like, yeah, I'm not so sure. Yeah. And I really, that stuck with me for a long time because, you know, obviously not everyone gets their, their little league coach to be Rick Dunkerley, master bladesmith. I mean, but, but it takes a lot to, to see, have an opportunity present itself and then to act upon it. And it seems to me that in your life, when I look at the decisions that you've made, opportunities have come to you and then you've seized upon them and that's the ultimate form of success really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that part I will definitely agree with. I mean, I, I have, you know, I, I have been a person that, you know, there, there's a lot of kids that make knives when they're young. I, I was a kid that definitely stuck with it. And I'll be honest with you. Like there were times I hated it. I thought, the other knife makers hated me. <laughs> I really? mean, I, I remember several times crying, telling my parents, Rick hates me and Wade hates me and, they, you know, I'm going to quit. And Because they were never very complimentary at that age. Uh, in fact, they were, you know, kind of the opposite. They were very critical of what I was doing. Um, and compliments weren't handed out easily, you, you know. But that being said, like, they were also, they weren't unfair and they weren't mean. They were just like, yeah, that's all right, but you you could do this better or this, this edge geometry is way too thick or, you know, they didn't like the design of something or, you know, you got a gap in your handle here. And so, like, I was constantly, I felt like, kind of trying to make knives to get their approval and rarely ever got it, mm-hmm. you know. Um you know, it was later on down the road, probably in my 20s, where I started making knives where I felt like uh, they respected my work a little bit more. But I don't think when I was young that they didn't respect it. I think they were just pushing me. Um, and I was I was trying to be, I was trying to catch them and get on their level, which I was always a step behind for forever, you know, just trying to. Because I, I was really lucky to get into a group of guys who were themselves taking leaps and bounds in their own work. I mean, you know, their work when I met them when I was 11, Rick and Wade and Shane and all those guys, Wade Coulter, Shane Taylor, and a n- numerous other guys, you know, they were all, let's just face it, they were pretty bad knife makers, you know, because they were new. They weren't bad for their experience level. They just had they were new themselves in making knives, like maybe had been in it only a couple years. And so as I'm trying to catch them, they were trying to catch Don Fogg and Steve Schwarzer and, you know, Al Dippold and Hank Nickmeyer. Like those guys were all making strides themselves. So as fast as I was getting good, they were equally getting good. And so sometimes it was just like, I felt like I was never going to get there because I, I wanted I wanted to be seen as like a peer, not the kid. Um, 
That's but that took, that took 15 years probably before that happened, where I would come to the Atlanta Blade show, hand them a knife, and they'd go, damn, like, that's a good one, you know? Um, See, but I can't get past the fact that the fact the fact that Rick let you into his shop when you were 12 or 13 yeah, or 11. 11. Yeah. And see, that to me is because I think about that a lot. I think about that as a very, that's the compliment. That's the compliment because there have been opportunities where parents wanted to come in and send their kid to work with me. And I've had 16-year-olds here as interns. And, and I'm just like, I would ne- some of them, I'm, I would never let them come near the grinder. They would say things like, what happens if I touch this? And I'm like, you're not going to be here anymore. I can't let right. you can't touch a bandsaw blade while it's running. Thank right. you. But so the fact that Rick was able to kind of like say, okay, let this kid come to my shop. Yeah. I think that that was, it seems like that was the acceptance from the beginning. I mean, cause if he just thought you were like some numbskull, you know, you were like a, like third string shortstop on the little league team who, yeah. who like, we're just we're all you, the best thing you could do would be get hit by the pitcher. He might right. not let you in the, he might not let you have come to the shop at all. No. And that's, and that's the perspective, like looking back now, you know, what I was talking about a minute ago was my perspective in the moment as a kid, just yeah. wa- wanting to get, but yeah, but looking back on it now, you know, none of those guys, you know, we did hammer-ins out at Shane Taylor's place. Uh, you know, Rick put on hammer-ins where Don Fogg and Schwarzer and all those guys would come. Ed Shemp out in Washington put hammer-ins on. And those guys would all allow me to come. I, I operated all the equipment. I did everything that the adults were doing without supervision. My parents were never there. I mean, like the, the local hammer-ins, my parents would stop by just because they were friends with the knife makers too and say hi. But I was on my own. But I never, I mean, nobody ever had to ever had to tell me like, knock that shit off. You know what I mean? I mean, there was never that. And, and I grew up, my parents had an excavation business. And from the time I was literally four, I was running equipment. I mean, I, I ran into a guy just this, just this fall that says, I remember meeting you. And I was like, when did I ever meet you? And he goes, uh, he has a cabin up where I, where I grew up in that town. And, uh, he said, your dad's the back operator, right? And he's, I was like, yeah. And he goes, you were four years old and I drove in to write your dad a check. And he had the backo set up out there and you were splitting wood with the backo. And he goes, you were, you were literally four years old. And he goes, I, I still remember that to this day. Cause my dad would tip all the firewood up on end. And he'd just have the backo set with the outriggers down so it couldn't drive anywhere. Right. And I would just use the bucket to split the wood. And it was is how he taught me how to start running the controls on the backo. Um, and I had my own lawn mowing business. So I, I think Rick saw that I was like a kid that was, I, I, that I will say is I was a pretty responsible kid and pretty good kid, you know. That but, is, see, that's the, that's the thing is that there, I always, when I talk to makers, in general, on this podcast especially, I always know that everything comes from somewhere, and it's usually from a younger age, like interest in things. And I, I love the fact, and I, and I can tell, you know, you when you meet younger people who are interested in making whatever it is, 
And the fact that you can tell, I mean, perfect example. I mean, Will Stelter is, you know, what is he, 15 years old? I mean, he's just, yeah. I'm just obviously I think he's kidding. actually 12. Yeah, he's like 12 or 13. <laughs> he, he's, yeah. I mean, he's one of these kids where, you know, your parent, you know, you leave him alone. You know, it, 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 you, 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 you would want to, to see him succeed and to see him do things because you know how irresponsible and capable he is. So I'm just Will, imagining. Will, yeah, sorry to cut you off, but you're yeah, exactly ahead. right on Will. Like, I, I actually said to him a couple times like and I, I i almost feel like it's probably an insult to him but i i tell him like i see so much of myself in him because that's how i was at a kid but but and i'm not even saying this like to try to get a compliment or anything but will is definitely like smarter than i was as a kid like will like will's a smart damn kid right and uh he's not a kid now i mean he's a he's a man but that will will is exactly kind of how I was at a super young age, and nobody if when will was sixteen, I'm sure his parents or any knife maker would have any problem just having will loose in a shop like he you know you just wouldn't even have to worry about it and and that's really how I was as a kid. I was very similar to will will's just freaking smart as hell great guy you know? yeah, great guy. I have a, I have a, he and I have a very strange relationship, but it's very good. But it's like we're like, we shouldn't be, fr- there's no reason why we should be friends. And we're totally friends. I, I, I'm a big Will Stelter fan. But that's, that's how the knife world is in general. Like I've always said that about the knife world. When we were traveling and doing shows, we, you know, growing up, I grew up in a tiny little logging town in Montana. It's, it's like zero diversity. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, pretty redneck kind of area. Right. And when we would all travel to shows, it was just such a cool community because you'd have rednecks and hippies and bikers and, you know, guys smoking pot and other guys drinking beer. And then other guys that are like super, super, uh, you know, religious that wouldn't do any of it. And, you know, knife customers who are lawyers and doctors and lesbians and like all this stuff right and when you you bring all these people together to knife show for three straight days it was just like a huge family reunion and nobody give a shit who you voted for they didn't care if you were gay they didn't care if you had hair down to your butt and smoke cigarettes or if you were high and tight and a mormon you know what i mean it was the greatest like community of people and it, it, it was actually really funny because we used to have these nights at the campus in at the Eugene, Oregon Knife Show, the Oregon Knife Collectors Association. Um, and I was a kid. They called me Psycho Knife Boy. And and Why? we would get to we would get wait to wait a second. Wait a second. <laughs> Where did this nickname? You can't go, you can't just say they called me Psycho Knife Boy for no. What? Why did they call you Psycho Knife Boy? Well, just because I, I think I, just because I was full of energy and I was okay. just all about knives, but okay. uh, and I was the kid, okay. so Barry Gallagher and, okay. Rick and and Rick and all those guys, I was always the one they'd hand like ten dollars in change to and say, "Go down to the pop machines and buy as many pops as that'll get us," you know, and bring them back to the room. I was the errand boy, but uh, we would get together at these hotel rooms at night, and you know, these guys are all. This is back when they're all in their like twenties and thirties, you know. And things would start getting a little wild, and they'd be talking about something. Maybe it'd be politics, maybe it'd be sex, something like that. And Devin Thomas, who was, you know, as pure as the wind-driven snow, you know, Mormon, very, very straight-laced, Devin would announce to the room, 
I do better when we just stick to knives. And it was like, immediately the conversation just like cleaned up and went right back to just, just knives. It was pretty funny. So we always called Devin the sheriff. Uh, in fact, they brought him a sheriff's badge one year and uh, he wore it around. But it was just a cool, if politics started getting involved and people were like disagreeing on something or whatever it was, uh, you know, it would quickly just turn back to knives. And God, it was just such a great, a really great time and a really cool, cool time to be involved in, you know. Did you, do you, do you see any parallels between when you were doing, when you were kind of coming up with all these master bladesmiths and extraordinarily great knife makers and the way you're seeing the camaraderie between knife makers now? I, I do. I think it's still very, very tight. It's one of my biggest concerns is that, you know, how easy it is now to operate a business and never travel to a knife show and meet a person face to face and get to know them like we used to, you know, it it scares me that the knife community will lose that sense of, of community and, and closeness because, uh, that's how it was in the nineties, you know, and in the early two thousands, the only time and the only way that you got to, you know, see and talk to a knife maker, see his work, share ideas, you know, help each other or ask for help was in person. You know, so that had to happen at hammer-ins and knife shows. Um, and so it was just so, there was so much excitement. And that's the one thing I would say that's lacking today compared to then, and I don't think there's any way to fix it, is when you got together, guys were so excited, one, to see each other, and two, to see what was out there. Mm-hmm. You know, and guys would bring Damascus steel that they had done or a new, a new way of constructing a knife. And just blow people away, right? Because there was no sneak peek on it. It was like you were always bringing your 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 best and thought you were maybe like inventing something new or some new pattern. Um, but it does feel like there's still, and I, I think that standard was set by guys like Don Fogg, Jimmy Fikes, you know, Jim Schmidt, Steve Schwarzer. Those were the knife makers that set the tone for in the 70s and 80s. And then in you know, it was carried on by the guys that I learned from and, and, you know, Tim Hancock and Larry Fagan and all those kind of guys that just carried through. And I really think today that's just like in the DNA of knife making. If, if you don't know a guy, but you call him up and you start asking questions, generally they're going to help you out, you know? And even back then there were little things that were like, oh, I can't tell you that cause I'm still trying to like work on it or figure it out. But in general, guys were were more than happy to help you and tell you how to do stuff, you know. And I, I still think today that's that's happening. You know, like Mareko and I, for example, I don't know if you've ever heard of Mareko Mamasi. He's on a Knife Talk podcast. Yeah, he and I, we've talked once or twice. Have you? Yeah. He, uh, I met him on Forged and Fire. Right. And, you know, in, in other industries, you'd probably be bitter rivals. But that's where I met him. That's where we became friends. And I literally had to jump off the phone with him and cut him short to get on with you today. He, you know, he's a really good friend of mine. And uh, I just, I just think knife making still has that, that feel of camaraderie, you know. 
I'm always surprised when I go to an event or even like recently went to Maker's Camp, uh, which was a great event in upstate New York. And I had a class at uh, Dragon's Breath Forge and it was all these knife makers. And I am always, you always get this, you see this charge of makers in general when they see other makers. And a lot of times people bring their own things and this is what I made. And there is this camaraderie and you definitely don't see this competitiveness that you would. I mean, I remember I, you know, I, on this podcast, I interviewed Jordan Lamote right before he went down to uh, blade show to mm-hmm. test for master bladesmith. And he, he announced on this podcast that he was applying for master bladesmith and he, he ended up getting it. And the level of people who just kind of reached out to me to, to just say how, what a great guy is. I was talking to Matt Parkinson not too long ago. And he was just like, there's not a nicer guy on the planet than Jordan Lamote. And there was definitely this real sense of a communal pride for the victory of just a, just an extraordinary person, but another knife maker, you know? A hundred percent. And honestly, that's something I'm actually trying to bring to, uh, you know, my production knife company with MKC is I, I, I don't know. I, I never really, frankly, I really never stuck my nose much into the production world while I was coming up. I was always just trying to make better custom knives and I was always trying to kind of catch my heroes. So I never really, you know, when I was at the blade show, I never really ventured into the production world. It's, it's not something that I, was really a part of, but I, I personally, like with my business, I have no problem if, you know, it's funny people come up and they're like good friends of mine that have my knives, you know, and we're making fixed blades. We're not doing folders right now. And they'll apologize for having a bench made or, or they'll have like someone else's knife, you know? And, and, uh, I'm like, man, I don't give a shit. That's a nice knife. Like I have bench maids. Like I have bought probably 10 bench maids myself from stores, right? Like if it's a, one of your knives or one of, you know, half-faced blades or Lucas with Grizzly Forge or whoever, Will Stelter, um, I, I think knives are like guns. I expect people to have lots of them from lots of different companies and people, you know? And so um, I'll just never get into that war whether it's in our, my production company, because it's, you know, we're competitors, quote unquote, against big factories or, you know, or in my production or my, my custom world, like, dude, I just love the knife making community in general. And, and it's been so good to me that I I don't know how I could not kind of try to pay that forward, you know? You know, I, I was thinking about you in general and I was holding you, I was trying to figure out other knife makers who have not only your pedigree, but have made the jump between, you know, the pedigree of being a master bladesmith to coming up with a production company that's like just gangbusters. And Mm -hmm. there's only one other person that I could think of that is kind of straddling that's in that same, you know, very thin air that you're at, and that's Bob Kramer. But I, I, I'm, you've been able to figure out a way 
to not only to juggle the art world, the art knives, the beautiful, when I say art knives, I'm talking about, I've looked at some of your work and some of it is just like extraordinarily beautiful and ornate and just gorgeous and just like museum quality, something that you'd see a pharaoh carrying or something that's just like a king or a pharaoh. I mean, it's just like, you just don't have no idea where to start on something like that. Just extraordinarily exquisite to come up with this, line that is so approachable. I, I have one of your Blackfoot knives. I was fortunate enough, and I think, I, by the way, towards the end of this, I have tips for the for the listeners on how to get into one of your drops. I ha- I know I know exactly what to do to make sure that you get on one of your things. I'm going to surprise you. I know exactly what to do, and it isn't nefarious at all. But what you've been able to do is to kind of like separate yourself out and create not only this beautiful artistic expression with your incredible folders and your Damascus and and the and everything, but then also to have this very approachable line of knives. Mm-hmm. It's just this incredible, you know, I hate to say dichotomy, but it is a dichotomy of like you're able to have both those, you live in both those worlds at a successful pace. Well, I I appreciate that. And in regards to Bob Kramer, uh, that's, yeah, that's rare thin air that I hope, I hope someday I can, you know, be on his level. But he, he's, one, he's one of those guys that was literally there from the day I was 12 years old at the Oregon show. Uh, and I don't know if people know this about Bob because he kind of comes across as a serious person because he's a you know seriously good knife maker, but he might be the funniest human uh, to ever grace the knife world. I mean that guy is unbelievably funny and entertained us for years at knife shows. Um, you know uh, what was it Barnum and Bailey Circus? I think is that right? Is that he am went I saying to Clown that right? College, didn't he? Yeah, he went to Clown College, and he was in the circus, and he would go off at these knife shows, like at dinner at a restaurant in in Oregon, and all of a sudden he would be literally standing on a chair entertaining the restaurant. <laughs> Are mean, you telling me he was doing like clown work? Not clown necessarily work? clown work, but just being hilarious in whatever the moment was, you know, like just being hilarious. And you, you combine him with Wade Coulter and, and Barry Gallagher back then. And, you know, they were all younger back in those days. And, uh, yeah, they were they were beyond funny. But uh, I kind of got off track there, but I just uh, people don't maybe don't know that about Bob, but he's and the nicest guy absolute nicest gentleman but uh just real quick to the listener if you want to listen to a great interview with bob who he goes into and he is funny and he does tells a lot of stories knife making down under the australians did a great interview with him and it was long and it was really really good and he told a lot of great stories and that was a lot of fun and mert and uh kev and and corin did a great job with him they basically kept their mouth shut and let them talk. So they go and listen. To, go listen I'll to that. Have to check that out. That was they did a really good job. They did a really good job with him, and 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 I was actually furious how good of a job they did with him. So it's like uh, that's definitely worth it. I, in my mind now, I'm picturing Bob Kramer's like Charlie Chaplin with like the the, the bread <laughs> on the forks, doing like the. I, I, he was sudden, doing I, stuff like that. Like yeah, seriously, and yeah the guy is just crazy talented funny and then also an amazing cook he would have us to his house we did this a couple times where we'd go to his house and have dinner just a few of us and uh he would cook for us and i mean phenomenal chef that's where he got his start he was a cook 
Yeah. And then yeah. he was sharpening knives, and that's how he... Uh, I met him one time, and I went to a sharpening event with him at a... Uh, I feel like it was his willing event, and he kind of went into his background. Someday I'll get him on here. We'll see. Hopefully, I'll knock yeah. on wood. Well, I'll, I'm yeah. going to hold. I'm going to hold. I'm going to hold off for a little bit, but at the same time. But in regards to your being able to make that transition between being, you know, I love the fact that the Montana Knife Company knives are very approachable, not only in price, but they're approachable in the construction. So. I'm going to back it up just a hair. You've done with being a lineman. You've decided you're going to start to do this production line. You're making the decision to get a business partner. What is the beginning stages of how do you get into deciding how that you're going to be into production work? And then what's the, what's the, the journey in, in the recon of production? Yeah, no. And that's, it's a great question. I, I, so the whole time I was a lineman, and actually even before that, when I was doing the custom stuff, I always knew down the road I wanted to have a, a production company that I could then, you know, that I could kind of help use my name to get going. And I always thought it would be something that my family could work in. And right. But back when I was doing custom stuff, I just had babies, you know, and per, my personal life and just everything wasn't in a place to, to do that. And I, I talked with a friend of mine who was a, a uh, you know marketing kind of guru in his company and he was always encouraging me for years to do it and I was like yeah time's just not right but I actually bought the name Montana Knife Company when I was 19 and I've had that registered with the state of Montana since knowing I wanted to try and do it when I felt it was right wow and and so when I when I was a, a lineman you know I, I had I had gotten divorced and and then when I got remarried um that's kind of when everything changed. One, my kids were getting older. And two, I kind of told her about this idea. And she was immediately like, well, you should just quit your job and do that. And I was like, well, that's not exactly how it works. But I, she was very encouraging from the start. And so I started to like think about it more. And, and uh, so I built some prototypes. And I went to an event at a, at a friend of ours place called Winter Strong, which is a, it's a really cool event back on the East Coast. And it had a lot of people from a lot of different industries. And I actually got invited there by Neil Kamamura. Uh, Neil was doing a demonstration of forging there. And he invited me to come kind of forge with him and demonstrate. And it was, it was at a place where there's lots of different people who are very accomplished in their different areas of life. Um, from, you know, athletes, coaches, uh, celebrities, um, people in the, in the, you know, kind of fitness world, uh, the outdoors world, Leopold and all these different places. And I brought some of my prototypes there and I showed them and, uh, I just kind of told those people what I was getting ready to launch. And honestly, so many of those people were, uh, so incredibly supportive and, and, and said they'd do anything to help. Stepping back to the prototype I built, I, I knew I could really only afford to to start off with one model. And you mentioned the Blackfoot, which I think you have one of the one of the originals. But I I uh, I wanted to build a knife that I would have carried, or that anybody could carry and do just about anything they would encounter in the outdoors world in North America. Um, it may not be the perfect knife for every job, but I wanted one that you could easily carry, 
It was small, and I wanted it to be simple, and I didn't want it really super flashy. Um, it didn't need a lot of bells and whistles. I just wanted you to be able to, you know, field dress a deer or a fish or or an elk, you know, or or carry it if you're a farmer and just cut hay bale strings with it. And and it didn't need to be huge. I I felt like in the custom world, custom knife makers knew how to make hunting knives with correct edge geometry and correct heat treatment, they didn't need to be super heavy knives. They didn't need to be six inches, eight inches long blades, you know, just a little three and a half to four inch blade done really well should accomplish almost every task that you'd run across, you know? And so that's kind of what I did. I, I, and, and I learned a lot. I made 200, um, I, I launched with 200 and I learned a lot in the construction of those. Uh, you know, I started off with water jetting, and I learned a lot. Oh, I had issues. I had to just do way too much handwork. And there's just a lot of stuff that I learned. I learned a lot about, you know, my sheaths weren't the greatest when we started. And so I tried to kind of improve upon it. Each each run of knives I do, there's really slight changes to our our process. And, you know, that was... That was in, in the spring of 2020. That was last year. And then it took really all summer and fall of last year to get that kind of going. And right now, currently in 2021, just today, we have about 13,000 knives in production. You um, mean you, that, that are in production you're waiting for? In production right now. Wow. Yeah. How, Not including how what you... we've built this year. How many do you think you've put out in the world? Um, you know, that's a great question. I would say probably 4,000, 5,000. Amazing, amazing. At least. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and that was really mostly in the back half of 2021. The first half we were, I mean, I quit my job with, as a lineman on December 30th, this last, if 2020. And then it took a couple months to like, uh, man, you want to talk about being like sick to my stomach driving home. I just quit a really good paying job with benefits that I told you about earlier. <laughs> you oh know, it's like, God, you're stupid. You, you know, but, uh, it really took the first three months, four months of 2021 to kind of get r- rolling. Um, and then in the last three months of, or, or four months from today, uh, going back about four months, we've really been like going hard and have things kind of rolling. So and we, we, you know, we've come out with several new models and, and yeah, it's just a lot happening. And, and now we're trying to figure out how to, to do more and more here on site. And it's pretty cool. It's so cool, but it's so like daunting because, you know, I've worked with uh, the New Jersey steel Baron and they do a lot of water jet cutting for me and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. thinking about like, I I love the fact that just looking at this particular knife, the the simplicity of it all, but the very the very critical decisions. You decided that you wanted to use fifty two one hundred steel, but mm-hmm. you knew that I'm in your mind. I'm imagining if I'm in the back room saying I want to use fifty two hundred, but I know these people are going to complain when it starts to make them. You know, it starts yeah. to patina. Yep. Now we got to figure out about coating. So, so, so was, did you, what, parkerizing or Cerakote or I'm just trying to think about how you did all these different steps and then 
the handle material and 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 we're not gonna we're gonna have them mechanically fastened and i'm yeah. just i'm fascinated by the decision making that you've made in order to because this is a very very beautiful knife but it's simple but like all i look at all the decisions that you've made and they're so they're so well thought out everything's very well thought out well thank you and you're right you've you've broke it down exactly i mean i I started playing with, um, you know, I had actually, I had actually never Parkerized anything. Uh, and I, I actually talked to Jason Knight about it. I think I talked to Haley, uh, Disrogers about it. Um, I, I talked to some other, some other knife makers who did Parkerizing just to see, you know, the different, different kinds of Parkerizing processes. And I, I played with a lot of different processes that, uh, or a, a few different ones that people had results with and kind of tried to figure out what I, what I liked best. And I also had, uh, blades Cerakoted. Um, I had played blades powder coated. I, I, cause I didn't know, like I was coming from the, you know, high end mosaic Damascus dagger right. world. So right. I, I, I didn't, you know, and I built some hunting knives, but I built some just, you know, 52 and hundred, uh, maybe etch a temper line in some or, or just mirror polish, or just a hand rub finish, but I never really worried about coating, um, and I for sure never worried about any of that stuff with my higher end like Damascus stuff. And so, yeah, that was all new. Um, and, and then I bought I bought some micarta, I bought some G10, and I actually used uh, a, b- a bunch of wood initially, but then I was like, man, I can't finding the consistency of the wood, and then the issues about it, you know, cracking or or warping and. I just decided I wanted to try to make as close to a custom knife as possible, but still have it be production. And and if you still want a custom knife with everything done custom, then, you know, you should definitely find a custom maker for that. But I want it to be as bulletproof and, and kind of carefree as possible, even though it's not stainless, you still have to do a little bit of care. But I also price them such that they're not super cheap, you know, they're not crazy expensive, but they're also not $99. And so I figure people who spend $250, $300 on a knife are going to be willing to take five minutes to clean it because they're going to care about it. I, I find that people that spend $69 on a knife at a store, they just don't really take the care in general of the knife that someone does of a high-end custom you know, or, or say a $500 custom, you're, you're, you, I just feel like you have a customer that's a little more willing to do a little bit of, of maintenance, you know. But you've also taken away a lot of the old, oh, I know all about it, and then how come it turned color? I mean, right. just parkerizing it is, I, I just, I'm, um, I love, you've created something that definitely feels like a production knife, but at the same time, it has that, you know, a custom feel to it. And I and I all I can think of is where do you start? You just said to say, all right, I'm, I got to find a guy who can do all this stuff. And well, I make the... I make them. I, I definitely I draw them out on paper like I've drawn every knife I've ever made. I, I draw it on paper and then I cut it out and I grind it and heat treat it and make it. And I I do that knife. Uh, I probably built twenty five different variations of that same little knife finish different ways uh you know different blade treatments as far as the coatings and different handle configurations and 
until I get it to I like it. And then here's what I do. Like, I am a computer idiot, as you could tell starting this podcast, not being able to shut off the you, ring. You, you got on. Um, you got on the podcast. I mean, I don't yeah. think that's an idiot. You so got what on, I, you're here. What I do is instead of designing on a computer and doing a CAD file, I build the knife, and then I send it to a guy who does the CMM mapping. And right. he maps out what I make and then puts it in a program. And and then from there, now we have a file that we can, you know, in the beginning, I water jet cut them. Now I laser them. But, uh, you know, they, that, now they're, now they're cutting and now we're building, uh, you know, say the CNC uh, milling program for the handle based off of exactly what I sent them. Uh, and that way, I, I think that's kind of what tends to give them a little bit more of a custom feel when you hold it. Versus something that's just designed on a computer exclusively. Right. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I take pride in being a custom maker. And, and I that's one thing I do take pride in in this company is that I can make the prototypes until I get it how I think it should feel. You know. So the great part is, is like I said, you have the pedigree. You know how to make a knife for Christ's sakes. And you, and you figured it all out. And then once you bring Brandon in. Yeah. How do you yeah. guys make the jump on how you're going to sell, how you're going to do the drops? How did you create this, like, I mean, a, it's a groundswell. It's a groundswell it, yeah. to the, the fact that people are angry with you because they I can't know. get knives. They get mad at you. That's, that's success. When it, they're yeah, mad, when they're mad that they can't get a knife from you, that's fucking good. Yeah, they're so mad. Some are so mad. It, it's um, great. Yeah. You keep I, being mad. I, yeah, uh, no, and the, honestly, sometimes a blind squirrel finds a nut, and and we, you know, Brandon had a lot of success in building different brands throughout his professional, you know, marketing life, and so a lot of the stuff that we did, the, you know, using Shopify and and the different things with the website, like that, that all came from his experience. The drop scenario just kind of like, it, you know, we just kind of released some knives, and then they sold, and we were like we were amazed and thought that was really cool. And then we made some more and then they sold again. And then it just started to kind of turn into a thing that like, honestly, we kept making enough knives that we thought each time we made them, we were going to have knives left. Like we're okay. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll have these and now we'll have knives on the site. Cause that was the goal right. was to have knives available. And we were initially talking, you know, like, God, imagine if we, if we could make knives and put them in stores and I was talking to local sporting goods stores and that was kind of our model of what we were going for. Like, Oh, maybe someday we'll be in Cabela's. Right. Well, as the drops started happening and started selling and the bigger they got, we, we started actually, we got a little advice from a guy who was the co-founder of Under Armour and he told us, forget the store model he's like i've lived that world he's like yes someday as a big brand that's where you're going to have to go if you get there right like at some point you're going to have to do that but he said do direct sales like don't yeah. don't give 50 percent of your margin right. away or 30 percent or whatever to a store he goes have that interaction with your customer and it's the greatest advice he he told us I don't want to hear you say the word wholesale or retail uh, or store for a year. He's like, give it one year. And that was in like um, 
probably January of this year. And he, he said, just table that and just focus on your website and your customers. That's all. And just give them 100% of your attention. And now where we sit today, it's like, well, we're not going to talk about that for a couple more years, you know, like, and you never say never. And I've, I've always, I've definitely learned that, but for now it's definitely just our website and our people. And, and, uh, yeah, honestly, man, it's just incredible. You're right. Like our last drop, you know, a couple weeks ago, again, we thought we had way more knives than we needed. And, you know, it was 600 knives in a minute and 45 seconds. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. You just blew my doors off. That's no, insane. I, and I'm not saying that to, like, uh, we don't generally talk numbers. I mean, I'm giving you, people ask us all the time how many knives were in that drop. And we're like, well, Rancher doesn't tell you how many cattle they have. But, you know, I, and and I don't like to talk too much about that stuff. But just to give people kind of an idea of, like, it's just kind of nutty and, and it blows us away, you, you know? Um, yeah, it just blows us away. But so. you deserve it. Like once again, you deserve this. And, and, and I'm once I'm, I smiled when you said that was, that's crazy. One of the things that I definitely agree. I, I hate, I hate wholesale. I hate, I had knives in this one shop and, and, uh, I'm actually, I had them in the shop for like, like three little knives. They sold two of them. They got one left and they went out of business and I'm just trying to hunt that last one down. It's like yeah. some, it's someone, some, someone's, you know, warehouse. And, you know, you, the, the, the idea behind going into a store, which is crazy. And I remember I was in, uh, I went to, uh, there's a great, uh, culinary store, uh, kitchen store in New York. I talk about all the time. It's called JB Prince. It's the number. If you're a cook in New York, you go to JB Prince to get everything. And they actually had one of uh, Mareko's knives in there that Salt Bay bought, for Christ's sakes. But if oh, you wow. looked at all the knives in that place, you're, you're, it's like trying to sell a hamburger at a hamburger convention. You know, it's yeah. just like, how do you, but, and, and, and you're trying to get casual sales and you're walking, you know, street traffic and, you know, all of a sudden it, it's not, it's, it's too passive. And yep. the fact that you were able to create this incredible demand to the point where you sold 600 knives in a minute and 45 seconds is insane. It's insane yeah. and it's awesome. And it's just like Cabela's, Cabela's who? I'm not doing that. Are you kidding me? I'm going to, I'm going to try to hold out for 10 minutes worth of knives. You know, it's like if you if you're at a at a minute and forty five seconds, you know, you you got you got a long way to go before you even have to even think about. Wholesale. No, I, it's true, and 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 you know, I in regards to what you were saying, like I told Brandon from the very beginning, I am not going to price these knives in a race to the bottom of the price chain. Like I don't care. I don't even look like I I don't really follow any other production companies. I don't care what people are selling their stuff for. Like we. We kind of build what we build because we think, like, this is a model that we think we want to build. Like, let's face it, Jeff. Like, every knife that the world needs has already been – it was already made 20 years ago. Like, right. the world doesn't necessarily need any more knives. And it's not like – it's not like – any of us are really doing anything that the world couldn't live without. So I, I think people are buying, people are buying, uh, you know, knives because they believe in the companies, they believe in the people. If it's a custom knife, they believe in them and their family. And, and yes, they like the knife, but they're also buying what's behind it and what, what it, 
you know, that connection, you know, that's why knife shows are great is that connection. And, and, uh, and I, I told Brandon, I, I don't, I don't want to compete with anybody. I just want to do what we do and then hope, hopefully we can sell it. And also price wise, you, you know, I didn't want to, you know, I, I've had a couple people, you know, they'll DM and say, Hey, look at this guy's knife. It's same, same kind of similar knife for this price. And I was like, that's a nice looking knife. You should buy it. I mean, that's usually what I say. Cause I don't care what anybody else. And that was always advice that Tim Hancock gave me is a lot of times he felt like I was underpricing some of my customs back in the early two thousands. And I'd be like, yeah, but look like Harvey Dean selling this buoy for this. Like I can't charge anywhere close to him. So I have to be down here. And Tim would always tell me, don't look at anybody's prices. You price them how, what, what your market will bear and what is respectable for your time. And Tim was also, and this is where I wish, I hope more knife makers can develop this attitude is Tim would always say, you are a professional knife maker and you're good at your craft. And he said, I am a professional knife maker. And he said, why should a lawyer make a hundred dollars an hour as a professional lawyer, and I can't make $100 an hour as a professional knife maker or $50 an hour. And he said, knife makers need to respect their craft and their experience just as much as they would respect anyone else's. And, and you know, most knife makers have put in, you know, 10, 20, 30 years to get where they get. And man, have have pride in what you're doing and don't be afraid to demand you know, a price that's fair and, and reasonable. And I, and I think most collectors and buyers, they want you to be able to feed your kids and live in a nice house. And, you know, they want to support your family, you know, so it kind of went off on a tangent there, but I, no, it's fine. I just think price wise, um, that's always just kind of been my big thing. I'm always telling a lot of, you'll see really great knife makers and, a lot of times they're they're not full time because they're maybe they're just not pricing their stuff quite high enough to do it, you know. That being said, you you know, you don't want to gouge anybody. You want it to be fair. And and I want people to feel like they have value. Uh a guy told me the other day is like I kind of keep going off here on you, but a guy told me the other day, you should charge more. Like your stuff's in such demand, you should charge more. And it's like, "No, I want the customer to feel like they got some value too." You know, like I want them to be excited about their purchase, not like, God, I paid six hundred bucks for this, and it, it really, you know, I, I paid more than double what it would have been in from anybody else. Like, I don't want to also be in that boat, you know. I think that your pricing is very approachable. I don't like to use. I like to, approachable is good value. I love. I when I when I remember when I tried to get the the first time I tried to get one of the Blackfoots. And I was Blackfoots. You call them, is it a plural of a Blackfoot? Blackfoots? Yeah, I think so. A Blackfoot. Yeah. The first time I was just like, you know what? This is a this is like right up my alley in terms of what I'm. You know, this is. I thought it was very approachable. Just changing gears just a little bit in terms of the yeah. groundswell. What was it like when Dana White from the UFC posted a video of one of his guys <laughs> cutting themselves with one of your knives? Yeah, that's pretty insane. Um, yeah, it, there's been several mind boggling moments in this whole thing. Like my business partner will call me and he, he'll always ask me what is happening. 
what is happening? <laughs> like, how is this happening? And I'm like, I don't know, dude. It's pretty amazing. But yeah, he, yeah. And uh, really the first thing that happened was Dana White did like some fight preview like two months earlier in our shirt. And I was like, somebody DM'd it to me. And I, I, I was like, I don't understand how, what's, how, how is this happening that he is like, do you know how many people would pay Dana White to wear their shirt? Oh yeah. Yeah. And and then the knife thing, uh first of all, I'm like, God dang, I hate I I don't want to see our knives c- cutting his employees, but he thought it was hilarious. And of course it was his uh it was like his Instagram guy or camera guy for that stuff, his media guy. So we we immediately DM that poor kid because he's just some kid trying to do his job and he sliced himself in Dana's yeah, he's office. Fooling around, he's playing around and fooling around with the knife and the next thing you know Dana White says get the camera on and we're going we're yeah, to film. Stitch we're gonna, him up. You're going to film him <laughs> getting stitched up with knucklehead, cut himself with my you know Montana Knife Company knife. Yeah, and Dana she, told him Dana told him he couldn't touch any of Dana's knives in his office anymore so we sent him his own knife, the kid. You have, know. You, have you talked to Dana White at all? No, I just texted with him a little bit, but I haven't I haven't talked to him before. I mean, it's see I the whole thing is so great because it's like like I said groundswell and it's just it's amazing to see especially in such a short amount of time. Yeah. No, it's crazy like um you know, I was actually in the backcountry of Idaho like a month ago hunting and I got an inreach message on my inreach that from my business partner that said Joe Rogan just wore our hat on his podcast. <laughs> and my business partner was freaking out, you know, and he had to tell me. And same with him. Like, it's just, and then Joe is like DMing us pictures uh, on his elk hunt. He's DMing us pictures of him holding our knives and, and told us how great they were and how great they worked. And it's just like bananas, you know, and, and you know, it, I don't know. Um, and there's so many people like that have just been so generous with all those guys could be charging any, you know, name it, any company, you know, a lot of money to do that stuff. And they're just, they're just kind of believing in what we're doing and what we're about, which is just really cool. He's been very, very good to the custom knife business. Yep. He's been, I mean, he had Mareko on, you know, he has some Mareko's knives. I know he's got some, he's doghouse forge liam hoffman he's very yep. very supportive of 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 these craftsmen and it is you know he is he's really i mean he's kind of putting custom knife makers on the map in that regard he really does he he'll post pictures of you know cutting up meat with like you said s- several different knife makers knives and i i don't personally know him but i'm really good friends with a lot of his close friends and everybody says like he's just genuinely likes people and he loves handmade things and he, right. he likes craftsmen and um, artists. And, you know, I think it comes across in his podcast, how much he appreciates, you know, um, you know, just people doing really, really amazing stuff across all walks of life, you know? So, What's next for what's next for Montana Knife Company? I mean, you got like four knives out that are yeah. each one. It seems as though they're getting bigger and bigger. To be honest with you, it seems like each design is getting a little bit more. the 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 bear tooth looks so awesome. Like I almost feel like a, the bear tooth could be a butchering tool in a professional kitchen. Like that looks. It's got the scimitar butchering knife situation going on. 
I feel like they're getting bigger. Is it? Am I wrong? No, it's kind of. I haven't really thought of that, but that's kind of how it happened. I kind of like slowly ramped up size, but uh, I mean, yeah, we're trying to kind of fill. I have all kinds of different ideas of all different models and, you know, we're trying to get a little more selective of like making a knife for a particular job, um, you know, that maybe we've been getting requests for, you know, the guy wants a boning knife or, Hey, I want a skinning knife or, you know, whatever it is. Um, so yeah, we're trying to do that. I, I, it's pretty exciting right now. We're working on the design of a, of a pretty big building that we're going to build here next spring. Um, I hired a guy out of, out of California that's actually going to be uh, moving up here in the spring, and we're going to be, probably be ordering somewhere around four or five CNC machines, and we're going to set all that up here in the spring, and he's going to manage and run the production facility. Um, we just have a lot of, like, really cool things happening. Models-wise, um, yeah, we have several new models coming out i'm actually working with uh um i i i don't know if i i guess i'll officially kind of announce it here he probably won't really care but uh i actually brought on moreco as our lead chef's knife designer and he's going to wow. be the lead he's going to be the lead designer of the chef's knife kind of division of mkc so we have three chef's knives in production right now that moreco designed and uh that's really why I was on the phone with him just now. That's going to be a bit of a slow start because I'll be honest with you. I, I've been battling in my shop the last few days of how to efficiently make these things and make them well, you know, and, and quality and, uh, you know, trying to figure out the process and I, and I write down each step. So that way, when I teach an employee, I can teach them step-by-step step the process and, and try to make it as, as efficient as possible. Um, part of the reason I brought Mareko on uh, is, you know, I'm not a chef's knife maker. Like, you, you know, you're, you're in that culinary world and you're respected for that. And you have expertise there. I don't like, I, I just don't have that knowledge and I don't want to ever make anything under our brand that isn't, like legit and and isn't respected you know i I don't want to make a chef's knife just because i think we could sell one i want to make one that like a a person like yourself or or a a chef at a restaurant could pick up and and even if they didn't necessarily want to use it or like it for themselves they could respect it and 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 i think that's where mareko will come in um in being able to help design things that are respectable um you know, so that, that, that'll probably be the second half of next year before we're really kind of up and running with that. But we want to market a little different than, than, you know, just kind of going the normal chef's knife route. I, I think what we're trying to go for, and I'm giving you kind of all the inside stuff of what we're doing, but who I'm, my mouth really, shut. My mouth nobody, is completely shut. Nobody really cares anyway. Uh, yeah, uh, I think you're, I think I'm going to hear about it on Friday. It's fine. No problem. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Yeah. No, uh, we're, uh, we are, you know, going to try and market really that like field to table thing where, where we're actually making these where they'll have like a, like a sheath where you could put it in your gear and pack it in on horses and have it at hunting camp. And maybe you don't go out, obviously you're not going to go out elk hunting and pack a, pack a chef's knife around, but maybe it's a knife that you leave at camp where 
you know, you cut up your meat or an outfitter would have at camp to, to prepare food for their clients and, you know, kind of market in that realm versus, you know, trying to get into, you know, more of the, the restaurant area and stuff that we don't necessarily have the experience in. But, um, yeah, just trying to kind of carve out our own little, little space in that and make, and see if it works, you know, you, you kind of couldn't have found a better dude to be part of that situation. You know, he's I mean, okay. Yeah. He's, I all mean, right. for, I mean, you can't really find, I mean, I'm like, I mean, that's, that's, that's incredible. I mean, that is, it, it is, it is a testament to your relationship with him. And I, and it is, it, it is a, it is a strong, strong move. I mean, get the best in the biz to help the best in the biz. I mean, that's, I mean, that's outstanding. I'm, I'm very, very, very much looking forward to seeing what, it's going to look like. No, I and, appreciate that. And I, and I, I agree. I, I, I have ultimate respect for his knowledge and expertise. And, and I don't think it, um, if anything, I hope that it will help, um, you know, help his business as well. You know, you, you know, I think he gets a lot of requests for, for knives from people that maybe are, you know, he's outside their budget. Right. Um, you know, a, a fancy Damascus custom isn't in their budget, but maybe when, uh, you know, a knife that he designs that we're making will be more in line with, with some of the people that, that maybe send him DMs and, and hopefully we can represent him well enough on our end that, that it's, it's kind of a feather in his cap as well. And, and it's definitely a feather in our cap to have a person oh, like him. So crazy. The biggest feather, like a peacock feather. I mean, it's like, <laughs> yeah. it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous feather. Yeah, yeah. What Maybe that's gr- what we'll what call great him. He's the peacock of Montana Knife Company. All right, there you go. There you go. You heard <laughs> it here first, Morocco. You heard it here first. Don't yell at me on Saturday. Don't tell me that. But, yeah. but but you know that's so so in your mind. So I imagine when you do these drops, and now thinking about how you have to how you have to plan things out. You have employees. When you pl- do, you have to how far in advance you have to plan all the building out. All the building yeah, of the knives, because like all, you sell everything thinking that you have extra, and then you move it all. Then all of a sudden, it's just like now, what do we do? Yeah, and that's actually an issue right now. That that's part of the whole trying to move more and more of what we're outsourcing around the U.S. right to here, because you know we aren't doing everything right here, and and we have different people helping us, and you know. Obviously, I didn't own a production knife company when I launched a production knife company. So, you know, we're trying to build this, you know, like you would build any other business. I mean, if you're going to start a mechanic shop, you might start with a few wrenches and a a, a few screwdrivers. Right. And hopefully down the road, you have all the fancy stuff, you know. And so that's what we're doing. But that's actually a really big problem right now. But in the same sense, I think it's actually been good because it's added a little bit to that scarcity. Like, for example, our Stonewall, you know, we sold all those. Now we're not going to have any in for, you know, a couple months. Um, and frankly, a lot of that's been a steel, a steel issue with, with right. trying to get steel. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, a 52 100, you know, um, I, I, I ordered steel in, in March that won't be delivered until next June, you know, oh so it's an, it's insane right now with steel. And, and, you know, another thing that I'll say that we don't have on our site right now that nobody really knows about, but we are going to be launching all of our models in stainless steel. And we've got a couple of those already going on right now. 
um, that that we'll be launching those probably in January, February. Um, you know, and that's American made steel. Um, but uh, you know, and that'll that'll you know, I, I'm sure there's some people that aren't buying some knives right now because they maybe they don't like the black finish or carbon steel or whatever they want. But you know, that, um, maybe uh, they were at three minutes. I mean, does, if you got if you got a yeah. minute, I mean, if they if they didn't like it, don't worry about it because it was only a, an hour, a minute and forty five seconds. Didn't matter. I know. Yeah, I actually called a guy the other night. He sent us a really kind of nasty email about how we ruined his evening, and uh, he he cut dinner short and all this stuff, and how how we're playing like marketing games and. You know, we don't announce how many knives we're selling, but I think sometimes people think we're like we're building up all this hype and then we're like selling ten knives. And it's really not the case. And uh and so I actually just called him to to explain and say, Look, man, like this is what we're doing. I even told him like how many knives we had. And he still he didn't want to hear it. Like he, he just thought what we were doing was a joke. And and really? I told him yeah, and so I did suggest some other knife companies to him that I thought were good. <laughs> and ultimately, I also told him in the end, like, we are talking here about a knife. Like, at the end of the day, um, it is just a knife. If it's ruining your day that bad, like, I think there's some deeper problems. Like, well, yeah, you know. anybody to write an email like that is like, as a grown adult, obviously yeah. has some sort of problem. And, and this brings me to uh, a tip that I have because I tried to get, I tried to get on the first batch of the Blackfoot, but Blackfoot's knives. Yeah. And then I also tried to get a knife from Tomer uh, Florentine Kitchen Knives had this crazy knife with this incredible pattern and just totally out of out of control. And my wife was just like, "Gotta get that." And I remember ha- I remember with. The first time I tried to get uh, a Blackfoot, and then the first time I tried to get a uh, Tomer's knife, I had him in the cart, and I was plugging in the credit card information, and all of a sudden it said, your cart's empty. Oh, and yeah. I, it, well, for you, it was okay, <laughs> because it was, 7 o'clock, it was 7 o'clock Eastern Standard Time when yours went off. But for fucking Tomer in Spain, I had to wake up at three o'clock in the morning <laughs> to get this goddamn yeah. thing, and and I sent him this horrendous text message. And it's three o'clock in the morning, and some son of a bitch took it right out of my golf goddamn cart. What do you yeah. think this is? What kind of bull? I'm at this three o'clock in the morning. I was lighting him up, but it was like it was more funzy than that. But right, and but so then both those issues, I realized okay. My issue isn't being on time. Like, I'd, and the, for the second time for the Blackfoot, I think it was six, seven o'clock. I finished dinner. I told everybody, "Look, don't bug me at seven. I have to get this thing." And what I did was, I wrote down all my credit card information on a piece of paper, right yeah. in front of me. I had the timer on my clock, and then I clicked refresh, like for like the last thirty seconds before it dropped. And then as soon as it got in, I, and you know, you were nice to me. I sent you a message and I was like, I, I got hooked. That's fine. You know, and you said, oh, I'll, I'll get you. I'm like, no, 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 I want to be like the rest of the fish. I'm ready to get hooked by myself. You know, don't worry about that. And yeah. I remember writing, writing all the information down, practicing, putting it into the, in, 
into the computer and I'm sure I could have just put it on Apple, you know, had it, had it all launched on my Apple, but for some reason it wasn't working. I fucking had it and right in front of me, the codes, the this, that, and the thing. I put it all in, boom, got the, I got in there. I got into yeah. that second batch and that's the key guys. You have to practice. You have to practice putting it in because a minute and 45 seconds, it's just not too, <laughs> it's just impossible otherwise. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And we've had people that have been telling people on the, uh, on the comments, what they've been doing is they've been going in and buying like some stickers or a hat or a shirt, and then oh. it saves all their info. So when they go to check out, they just, all their info's in there and they just hit check out and, and done. And it's all because Shopify saves all that stuff. Well, now what's been happening is people have been going and buying like shirts the week before or a hat. And then they like they get in like a minute or two minutes late, and they still miss the drop. And then they email, and they're like, "I bought this stupid fucking hat, and now I don't have a knife." <laughs> and they're all That's pissed hilarious. off. Yeah, I have a hat from this company. I don't have a knife from, and I'm like, "Oh my god, I'm sorry. Dude. Like, I feel bad." But it's like, you you bought that hat. I didn't. I didn't force you to. But that is hilarious. And we tell people like we we want to obviously get everybody a knife it's not like we're trying to not sell knives but it it did feel like and i actually talked to there was another guy who listens to this podcast uh jordan dance he he's a knife maker and he's been very supportive of you been very supportive of me here too i felt like when i got it i felt like i won the lottery yeah, I legitimately felt like because all of a sudden everything's gone, and then you you got on this post and your your hats up, and you're just like, I can't believe it. It went on a minute and forty five seconds, and I was like, I was one of those guys. Yeah, I literally felt like I got Willy Wonka's golden ticket or something like that. <laughs> it felt like, and well, I think that a lot of your customers probably feel the same way. And it oh, arrived yeah. in the box and all the information, and and you wrote me this real nice message, but it felt totally like a hundred percent like I won the lottery. Well, and then they fight in the DMs because guys will get in there and be like, I didn't get one. This is bullshit. Your company's a fraud. And then the next guy will comment, I got three. You're obviously slow and stupid. And then they start fighting. And I'm like, guys, hey, we got to settle down here. Like, you know, they start trash talking each other. So good. It's so funny. And it's just like, to me, it's just, uh, again, it just is kind of mind boggling. Like we, we sit as a family and like, watch you know the kids and my employees are texting us like we have a big group text and they're like counting down the numbers and it's like because we're all like so incredibly like i don't know when you when you you put all this time and thought into something you talk about it for like literally years and then it finally starts to happen it's just kind of mind-boggling and honestly like i tell people and i i Maybe they think I'm bullshitting, but like when I post on Instagram how much I appreciate like everybody that even buys a shirt, like they're buying a shirt to wear around in Rhode Island that says Montana Knife Company. It honestly, it just is uh, like incredibly humbling. It just blows me away that they're choosing to wear like something I built, you know, and you and it's the same way. Like when you sell a knife to somebody, I know I felt this way with my customs, like when you sell a knife to somebody and you stop and think about it, like they are, they are choosing to spend the money that they're earning, that they're also saving for their own goals to buy something that you designed in your head and made. And it's a really cool, I don't care if you're making and selling 
two knives a month or or a hundred, it's a really cool feeling, you know. Yeah. And it's what it's what feeds our families as knife makers. So it's just uh, and and I think with knives, it's you know you saw in the production world, and it's something I've kind of talked about several times in my Instagram stuff. You know the the whole throwaway knife became a thing, the replaceable blades, and and I do get it in certain instances. You know if you're a if you're a guide and and you're you're literally dealing with you know, a dozen, you know, elk or deer or whatever a week and you don't have, you're tired, you don't have time to sharpen knives. And I I see where people are coming from in certain instances with wanting just quick and simple, right? Use it, toss it, grab another one and go. But my whole thing about knives and guns is it's, it's one of the very few things that we have in this world that are passed down, that aren't thrown away. And Almost everything, I mean, if you look around your house, almost everything you have, somebody's going to throw away someday. <laughs> yeah. and, and and if you go in a store, for sure, just about everything you see is made as cheaply as possible to throw away. And uh, what you are making, you know, at Fader Knives or what Mareko's making, or even us at a production company... Um, even a, a bench made a buck. I mean, how many times have you had guys walk into your shop with a buck knife or an old timer, you know, or a case with tip broke off and people are like, can you just sharpen this for me as my grandpa's or yeah. whatever. They mean something. And, and whether you're spending $300 on our knife or, or a thousand dollars on a custom, um, I, I I just think it's really cool that we're making things that are going to be passed down, and and especially the custom stuff. You know, some of those knives. You know, one of one of whoever uh, Mareko, for example, one of his custom chef's knives literally might be in a museum someday. You know, um, and and the 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 set of steak knives that you make for you know uh, you know some some gal some thirty year old gal and her little family literally might be the steak knives that she gives to her grandchildren and passes down. And that's just a really, like, think of the the dinner conversations and the amount of history behind those knives or the or with ours, with our hunting knives and the, the amount of experiences that go into those knives. And, you know, someday they're sharpened halfway gone and tips are gone. And I don't know, I just, I find that all really cool. And that's that's one thing I think as knife makers, we should take a lot of pride in that we're doing something that's, not made to throw away, you know. Ain't going to get much better than that. Josh Smith, Montana Knife Company. I am so fucking happy for you. Every time I see you, you got something going on. It's just, it makes me happy. It really makes me happy. P.S. One well, last thing about this Blackfoot, which I love. It's still in the box. I opened it up. I looked at it, but I have everything there. Yeah. The value of it over time has to be more for this reason. There is a typo on the box. Do you know about this typo? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you know about this typo, which I found yesterday? I had this knife since I fucking got it. I'm looking at the box and I'm thinking, do I bring up the typo? It's actually a thing that is, is our, uh, 
it's it's kind of a running thing in our our company right now because Brandon does all that stuff. Not to not to blame him, but I'm I'm blaming him. Yeah, he, he does our marketing stuff, right? Well, a lot of times on our Instagram posts, he's just so like he's a super smart guy. He's super. He's got a freaking master's degree and all this stuff. He can spell, but he's always in such a hurry. He'll type something. He'll write something. He'll do it, and then it's usually our employee. Her name is Sadie. She's this. 20-year-old girl that works for us who's awesome, she will text both of us and be like, I cannot work for a company that sounds like it's being run by a bunch of morons. (laughs) And we literally, I don't, I can't remember when we found that, but like we were, yeah, we were appalled. I mean, but, I mean, hell, we bought 3,000 boxes. (laughs) I mean, we're going to use them. I I was about to say, they all got to go out. But these knives are designed and hand fish-headed. <laughs> finched headed, finched yeah. headed by Master Bladesmith Josh Smith. Yeah. I, this is going to be one of those things. This is going to be part of that. Those three thousand boxes that go out with these yeah. beautiful knives, with that outstanding typo are going to be yeah. worth a whole lot more and if you haven't looked at your box you put it in the recycling bin you fucked up because you have something from now on that's going to yeah. be the great part of the first batch of montana knife company knives josh there's you several, are the fucking man there's several things that have happened that make us all wonder around here how in the hell it is that we're running a successful business. But. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. It's the perfect energy. You have this perfect energy. You and Brandon and your wife and your kids and the whole nine yards. Once again, I couldn't be happier for you, and I just I, it, I couldn't be happier for you. And I, and I look forward to what's next. I'm looking forward to seeing what you're going to do with Mareko. That's going to be awesome. He's going to be playing it very close to the vest. But now, Mareko, you're here. You got you, you, the beans are spilled. Now we got to talk a little bit more. So, yeah. with that said, guys, go follow. You already do. Follow Josh Smith. Go follow Montana Knife Company. Go support his last question. Last question. I love the hat, but there's this leather part. What is that leather loop for? Is that for something? On leather on the, loop on, on the, the beanies, on like the watch caps. There's this leather loop oh, on the I top. Just, I have no idea. Maybe okay. maybe uh, if you live in North Dakota, you have to tie it to your coat. Oh, you know, so okay. I thought maybe away. it was for. Like I, a, I thought it was like for some. I thought it had some sort of. I love it. I actually have it. In the I shop think that's right a branded bills. Uh, that's just kind of one of those okay. things. All right. I thought maybe it was like to hold something, like a feather in there or something like that. We put the peacock feather in. Yeah, there. the peacock feather. That's exactly. for the peacock feather, guys. Guys, go follow Josh Smith on Instagram. Go follow Montana Knife Company. Don't don't hesitate because this is going to be things are going to get wild over in montana and and i couldn't be happier for him so guys you did what you had to do go follow him tell your friends leave a review subscribe to the podcast and then we're going to see you next week so have a great weekend everyone we have a lot of good shows coming up i'm not going to tell you about them but we'll see you next week thanks again josh you are the man thank you brother i appreciate it The Full Blast Podcast is proudly sponsored by Axe Wax, an all-natural, food-safe wax for coating your handles. It can be used on your axes, your knives, or even on your boots, with the full confidence that Axe Wax is safe and durable. Furthermore, if you use the promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get a special 10% discount on your order. So go to axewax.us and get yourself some of the most luxurious wax for waxing your axe.
If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.